Greetings to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe today is the last day of November, and what do you know, we enter the final month starting tomorrow of 2020. Uh, Hard to believe it is going to be the first day of December tomorrow. Um, It doesn't seem like it's already here, but whether we like it or not, it is here. Um, I certainly do hope that uh, after today, the final 31 days of this year will be a bit better than the last hundred or more days have been from this current year. Um, there's you know, still a lot of uncertainty in the world right now, but with each day uh, that passes by, there is some hope of you know good news that the vaccines for uh, COVID-19 will uh, be successful. And um, I certainly will keep my fingers crossed and hope that that these uh, vaccines do bring uh, meaningful results to those who are in need of them. Well, here we are um, picking up on where we left off from the previous podcast uh, of uh, John Aller's The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. Our session for this particular podcast on uh, Francis Marion for... um, whether you all are um, on um, daytime or nighttime, wherever you all are on the United States or in, throughout the world, this uh, episode of uh, John Aller's The Swamp Fox will talk about uh, Francis Marion's background in terms of um, where his ancestors uh, came from. And it's not so much learning about where his ancestors came from, but understanding why his... Um, religious sect, or let alone faith, um, of uh, people turned out the way they are in terms of um, being the type of individuals who um, did not advocate uh, violence. Of course, I know I might be giving part of the answer away, but in order to understand why Francis Marion is the person he is, we need to understand about his family's um, ancestry. So, tonight's lead-off bonus question is the following. Were Francis Marion's ancestors victims of religious intolerance? Well, religious intolerance should mean right away that, um, that there is, um, it's another word for, you know, religious prejudice. In other words, not being accepted, not being um, accepting or not showing acceptance of uh, religious diversity from within your own country. And Europe had its share of religious wars, all in the name of um, Catholicism versus Protestantism. But that's not to say that just because you were Protestant that you were um, immune from uh, conflict from within, because Protestants were known to uh, persecute one another. Didn't make it right, but sadly it happened. So yes, uh, Francis Marion's ancestors were the victims of religious intolerance. His ancestors were a French Huguenot faith. And these people endured unfair treatment, or not just unfair treatment, but a great deal of unfair treatment in the late 17th century under the French monarchy led by King Louis XIV. And I should point out that... um, Interesting enough, my wife and I um, live on a side street, um, but the main road is Huguenot Road. 
Well, it's named, Huguenot Road is named after um, those um, Huguenot ancestors or people of Huguenot faith who um, escaped religious persecution to start a new life in none other in the new world. I think all those uh, people before us of the Huguenot faith would be very happy to know that there is a road named in their honor given how much sacrifice they made by coming over to start a new life. So why, I think many of you are now wondering, why were the French Huguenots um, victims at the mercy of a French, not just of a French monarch, but a king who uh, seemed to not care about them? The irony to it is that prior to Louis XIV's arrival, uh, French um, Huguenots actually received good treatment. However, in order to have received good treatment, a fellow by the name of King Henry IV in 1598 issued the Proclamation of 1598, but or really I should say it was known as the Edict of Nantes. The Edict of Nantes, um, I did some research, um, basically was a proclamation where Huguenots were given better protection. In other words, prior to this edict being established, there was um, major um, civil unrest in France to where uh, minorities, most notably the Huguenots, had endured um, brutal treatment, uh, being oppressed. So under this edict, French Huguenots were given, um, what do you call it, better um, religious protection, given that they were not in the majority, being that of the Catholic faith. They were also allowed to bring um, grievances directly to the king. They were allowed to... um, they were allowed to have the right to work in any uh, profession. So the bottom line is is that uh, under the Edict of Nantes, religious uh, conflict was pretty much reduced for pretty much the entire second half of the 16th century, or for a good bulk of it, for that matter of fact, given that in 1598 uh, would have been the end of the 16th century. But... For the second half of the 16th century, let alone, it is fair to say that uh, French Huguenots were given uh, better protection and their future did look a lot brighter. Sadly, that all changes by 1685 when Louis XIV uh, decides to revoke the Edict of Nantes. If any of you all don't know what revoke means, it's another word of uh, removing, um, taking away something that's already in existence. Revoking sometimes can be a good thing, but in many other instances it's not a good thing, particularly revoking um, a minority, a religious minority group's rights and knowing that um, they were allowed to um, still be a part of the government, knowing that they were in the minority. But sadly, those rights were taken away, and because of uh, what Louis XIV did, everything opposite took place. In other words, no longer could Huguenots uh, bring grievances directly to the king, nor could they um, nor could they practice their faith peacefully. And to make matters worse, all Protestant churches under Louis XIV's reign were destroyed as well as closing schools. 
Catholicism reigned as the superior religious denomination. So I can't imagine living in a time where religious discrimination was so bad to where all of a sudden your um, fundamental liberties and freedoms were just uprooted out of nowhere to the point where you either ended up facing persecution by death or you were forced to seek asylum in another country. You know, too often it's easy to take this for granted and realize that, oh, you know, all of this stuff happened years ago. It can never happen today. But ironically, there are still places in the world where people are discriminated, and not just discriminated, but they are um, severely uh, mistreated all in the name of religion. So the bottom line is, even in the 21st century, there is religious persecution, whether we want to admit it or not. Of course, Thomas Jefferson, not to get off track here, but of course, Thomas Jefferson's not alive at this time, but... Even Jefferson himself said years down the road, after the uh, Virginia Statutes of Religious Freedom were enacted in 1786, that religion um, caused so much uproar and caused so much unnecessary tension that it brought out the worst in people. And what he meant by that was that religion made people do things that were unbecoming. It made them... um, it made them ignorant, not just made the individual ignorant, but it made society ignorant of others, of other people's faiths. In other words, Jefferson saw a lot of uh, religious intolerance, not only in Virginia, but he saw how it um, destroyed civilizations or let alone societies in Europe, all in the name of uh, religious indifferences. So, so uh, persecuting, um, it's bad enough if one group gets persecuted, but when multiple sects are pe- persecuted, um, it makes um, acceptance or religious acceptance alone all the more, um, all the more um, difficult to um, attain. So, after finding um, asylum or let alone refuge in England, uh, another word for asylum means refuge, whom did the Huguenots go to for seeking new opportunities? Well, the uh, Huguenots turned to a group known as the Lord Proprietors, or the Lord's Proprietor, rather. It was a select, or let alone an elite group of men whom owned a province in the New World known as Carolina, The lords were granting land and religious freedom to all people, including Huguenots. Well, if I'm someone who has uh, sought refuge in England and I'm looking for a new opportunity, regardless of whether I'm a French Huguenot or someone else who has been the victim of religious persecution, why not take an opportunity and go start somewhere new where new opportunities arise and the chances of um, being able to practice my faith will be much better than, say, uh, Europe. So our another, another bonus question is the following. What's unique about 1690? The answer is the following. Benjamin Marion, who is Francis Marion's grandfather, arrives to the New World with his wife and five servants. He receives 350 acres 
of land on Goose Creek in St. James Parish, which is located 15 miles north of Charleston. Now, it's easy to assume that when you learn about someone and you learn how their last name is pronounced, like in the case of Francis Marion, it's very easy to assume all this time that his last name has been Marion the whole time. Turns out it wasn't. The last name Marion being spelled M-A-R-I-O-N is the anglicized version given that the original pronunciation of his last name was M-A-R-I-O-N for French. So this is a good example, folks, of where it's easy to assume that just because you have one last name that there was never a different spelling for it to begin with. How false that is. As a matter of fact, um, I had read in a book a while back, uh, David Hackett Fisher's book that he wrote um, a long time back, but was still well worth reading about Paul Revere's um, ride. Paul Revere, his, um, yes, his last name is spelled Revere, R-E-V-E-R-E, but it turns out that his real last name was that of French uh, descent, being Revere, R-E-V-E-R-I-E. So there again, it's another uh, example of where uh, we can get, um, we can assume one thing, but then realize that there's a different pronunciation. So when Benjamin Marion arrives into South Carolina, or Carolina rather, I should say, many of his neighbors in Goose Creek would become well known, not just uh, in South Carolina, but for, um, but for also being of uh, French Huguenot uh, descent and for along with living along the Santee River, because it turns out that a number of uh, French Huguenot families would live along the Santee River. The names ranged from Ori, even though it's spelled H-O-R-R-Y, but it's, pro it's pronounced as Ori, Hughie, Lawrence, Lenode, Manigo, and Postel. Interesting about the Lawrence, because there is a town in South Carolina called Lawrence, South Carolina, which is in the northwestern part of the state outside of uh, Greenville, um, named after uh, Henry Lawrence, who uh, would uh, go on to uh, play a pivotal role in our uh, Young Republic's establishment, not to get far ahead of the game, but if you find if you if any of you all learn about that uh, family name Lawrence, think of Henry Lawrence. And the Ories uh, were big um, supporters of Francis Marion. Uh, matter of fact, uh, Robert and Peter Ory would become uh, two of Francis Marion's closest uh, military companions. So another bonus question is the following: uh, Which European sect established the first uh, settlement in South Carolina? I think many of you all will find this to be surprising, but some of you may not find it as a surprise. I found it a bit of a surprise when I read this book uh, two years ago. The answer is the following: uh, The French Huguenots. They uh, were the ones to establish a f the first settlement in South Carolina. Uh, that is the first non-English settlement in South Carolina around 1660 in present-day Port Royal, uh, Port Royal Sound, which I should say is uh, not far from um, Hilton Head Island, where my uh, family and I have vacationed on many of um, occasions. But come 10 years after 1660, we have to go to 1670, which was the first English settlement in what was become South Carolina in uh, Charleston, 
but of course for many years it would be referred to as Charlestown. So over time, many of you all are now wondering, will the Huguenots, along with the English people in South Carolina, learn to coexist together? If both of these um, groups have established settlements, won't they um, come together? It didn't happen overnight, but, through, but with time, both uh, peoples, or I should say both sects, did come together um, and coexist peacefully. As for the French Huguenots, despite sticking to traditional customs, many of them went about adapting English norms, especially their language. However, um, in order to make um, accommodations, or not so much accommodations, but to make things even better for both uh, groups of people, um, French Huguenots and English intermarried, the French Huguenots, rather, I should say, intermarried with English settlers, including having their names anglicized. As I mentioned earlier, you know, many of the French Huguenots who came here had... um, had a different pronunciation of their names, but in the end, um, for a handful of them, their names would be anglicized. And it turns out that uh, most of these French Huguenots would join the Anglican Church, a.k.a. the Church of England. And then uh, the services were translated into French. So it seems like the uh, French Huguenots and the English have made some unique compromises on how they can... um, coexist together, not just uh, marrying uh, one another, but in in order to um, go about establishing church services, uh, there were some unique unique compromises there. But it turns out in 1706 that the official state religion of South Carolina is none other than the Anglican Church. And how ironic in 1706 that um, our first uh, forefather our first prominent forefather, let alone, was born in colonial America, being Mr. Benjamin Franklin, who actually was born in Boston, Massachusetts, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So, uh, the next uh, question is the um, following. French Huguenots... I find this interesting, but it is something that must be pointed out. French Huguenots um, were not hateful people. I think we often assume that everybody who's in conflict with one another when it comes to religious warfare, that they um, choose to remain in conflict no matter whom they come across. It turns out that the French Huguenots were probably in an elite minority, They weren't hateful people, despite everything they had endured from their past. So in other words, here they had endured religious persecution. They had seen all their rights be stripped from them, given that the Edict of Nantes was revoked under Louis XIV. Yet they seek asylum in England, and yet they are offered a great opportunity by the Lord's proprietor to um, make a new living in Carolina, And what do you know, for many of these um, new immigrants coming over to the New World, they have um, really fulfilled what we think of in in today's time or in centuries down the road, or not centuries, and um, 
later on down the road, uh, that famous phrase, the American dream. So it's easy to say that the, it's very safe to say that the French Huguenots are living the new world dream at this time. Now, in 1693, uh, three years after Francis Marion's grandfather settles in um, Carolina, Francis Marion's father is born, and his name is Gabriel Marion. And in 1714, he marries a woman named Esther Cordes, or Cordes. She is the daughter of a well-to-do Huguenot immigrant. This marriage will produce six children, and the youngest being none other than Francis. What year was Francis Marion born? It's, an, it's, a, uh, it's a unique year because another prominent forefather was born the same year as Francis. Well, Francis was born in 1732, the same year as George Washington would be born. Francis Marion was born at a place called Goatfield Plantation, 14 miles northeast of Goose Creek in present-day Berkeley County. He was named for his uncle, Francis Cordes. Now, tragically, when Francis was in his teens, his father died and in the aftermath of that, his family resided in Georgetown, where he would get acquainted with the town's English heritage. And in order to understand not just your English heritage, but to understand or let alone appreciate your um, how you could go about getting a better upbringing, as well as appreciate all that surrounds you in terms of landscape, Marion goes about hunting and fishing the inland woods and swamps to gaining firsthand to gaining strong firsthand knowledge of the land terrain that would one day down the road serve importance in battle. So it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I, I might live in Georgetown. What do you know about Georgetown? Besides uh, getting from point A to point B by horse and buggy, what do you know about the land? What do you know about secret uh, routes to get around uh, from point A to point B that maybe somebody from the outside doesn't know? So, you know, yes, you can walk through the woods and hunt, but you better make sure you know as many of the ins and outs because you never know when it could be a matter of life and death. And if you want to find the quickest way out, then you've got to make sure you can do everything there is to outsmart someone who could be chasing your tail or let alone a, um, a renegade uh, group of outlaws who might be wanting to um, create harm not only for you and your family, but for your community as a whole. So all of this will uh, serve Francis Marion. Um, it will serve him for the better. Now in 1755, he is about 23 years old by this time. He will return with his mother back to St. John's Parish near Monk's Corner. Marion's mother dies around 1756, and Francis and his brother Job receive the majority of her small estate. We also have to remember, folks, too, at this time, most people are lucky if they make it to the age of 40. If they live to 50 and over 50, they've lived a long life. But life expectancy is, very, is not very high. It's something I'm afraid we sometimes take for granted in today's time, even in this time of uncertainty. But we must remember there was a time when people didn't live to be as old 
as we would have assumed. If anybody did live to be past 60, they not only had lived a long life, but they might as well be considered old age. Now, on January 31st, 1756, Francis Marion has his uh, first taste of militia of military service by enlisting in the St. John's Militia Company. So I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, when is Francis Marion going to know what it's like to serve in the militia or let alone military? But remember what's going on um, at this time. There is a war going on in America, a.k.a. the French and Indian War. And it's going to be interesting to note what kind of involvement Francis Marion will have in this war. It could change him in many ways for the better. Bonus question here is the following. What was the first major break in Francis Marion's life? Ironically, it was internal. It was through his brother Gabriel who married a, a woman by the name of Catherine Taylor, whose father set them up with Belle Isle in St. Stephen's Parish, south of the Santee River. It was through um, Gabriel's marriage to Catherine Taylor that Francis would receive a portion of land known as Hampton Hill to farm for his own purposes starting around 1759. So, you know, yes, it may be one thing for... For his, for his brother to have married and started a life of his own. But how nice that his brother was kind enough to look after him and say, hey, we want you to live with us, maybe not live under the same roof, but have some ad, ad, adjoining property. So this way you will be able to start a life of your own and not have to be dependent upon someone else. It's a nice way for family to look after each other, and especially knowing that the elder Marians, being Francis's parents, are now passed on, or now deceased. What I find um, very important to learn about here now is the time frame from 1759 to 1774. And I mentioned from the previous podcast, uh, back from this past Thursday, that... Um, you know, Francis Marion, when he takes over as commander of um, the Williamsburg Township Militia, in order to um, instill trust in the militia, in order to um, establish discipline, he's got to be a very um, disciplined man himself. He's got to be able to keep his regiment in line and make them understand that, hey, it's one thing to fight. It's one thing to fight against the enemy but you've still got to keep your composure. In other words, don't engage in the eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth practice. Okay, if someone else on the, on the enemy side did damage to your property, would it be okay for you to go blow their head off in return in terms of getting revenge? No. In other words, extremism, in Francis Marion's eyes, is not going to be the answer to resolving the problem. But before we get that far ahead in the game, we're going to talk briefly about the 1759 to 1774. Now, I know that's 15 years, and yes, uh, many of y'all are wondering, how can you cover that period of a time um, 
how, how are you going to be able to cover it in a short period of time? Well, I can, I can answer to that. I can, I can tell you all. This time frame between 1759 and 1774, Francis Marion himself would only endure two major interruptions. But these major interruptions are going to have a long-lasting effect on him because this is because he will experience one moment of present history, but years down the road, it will be the next moment of history will be something that, yes, is in the present, but will uh, carry over into the future for our um, as we will eventually transcend or transition from colonial America to what we still know today as the United States of America. So, the first interruption had to do with the Indian War on South Carolina's most western edges, whereas number two would be a fight for revolution in the separation from England. I think we're getting on to something here. The first interruption, Marion himself fought alongside British soldiers in the French and Indian War. So he's going to learn some stuff that the British are, um, are going to learn from Indians who, are, who have allied with the British in their fight against the French. Because in the French and Indian War, you, ha- you do have Indians allying themselves with the British and those with the French. Now, in the second major event, Francis Marion will be seen taking up arms against the British. And it's one thing to take up arms against the British, but this is going to involve uh, the lessons he learned from the, fr- from the first go-around on the frontier, being from the French and Indian War. So basically, he's going to be learning how to operate guerrilla-style warfare, or let what we would refer to as irregular fighting, He's, you know, in other words, he's not going to concentrate all of his time and energy on open field warfare, where one group is on one side and the other opposing forces on the opposite side firing at each other from a hundred yards away. Marion is going to be learning to fight a new style of fighting that's going to um, surprise the enemy in the most remote of places to where Casualties for the enemy might appear small at first, but over time the casualties will grow to where the enemy may not be able to sustain long-term fighting against um, insurgents that are coming out of nowhere. And yes, the the groups are small, but their but their um, consequences are very deadly. So yes, it's one thing to say that okay, three or five people die. What about the supplies that are being transported? What about what those who had on them who have now succumbed to death by being shot will leave behind? So, yes, when you take up arms against the British, you better make sure if you fought along the frontier from the French and Indian War, you better make sure you've learned some stuff because you never know when it's going to come in hand. And Francis Marion will not be taking any of that for granted. Well, we're going to learn more about um, in the next podcast about Francis Marion's um, adventures along the frontier from the French and Indian War 
and how he um, learned what we now know is guerrilla-style warfare. He didn't invent it, but he learned it from the Indians who fought in the French and, French and Indian War along the western edges of South Carolina. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and those for all of you out there, just be thankful that um, be thankful that uh, that we can worship freely. Be thankful that yes, we still must remember that there are people in the world who still endure religious persecution or religious intolerance, but we must uh, remember those who endure that because uh, they would give anything in the world to be in our shoes who are immune from religious persecution. Well, uh, stay safe and um, take care, and uh, God bless, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Later.